from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. We actually do this in our normal, everyday speech. So if you look at statistical patterns of speaking, we tend to insert pauses right before words that have especially high information content. And so, yeah, we're all doing it, and the fish are doing it. Yeah, and it turns out our brains also, if you record an EEG from a person, uh, you know, we can't stick an electrode in a person's brain and record from neurons the same way we can do in these fish, but we can record EEGs, electroencephalograms of brain activity. I'm Sarah Fenske. Good public speakers often turn to an easy trick the dramatic pause. Heightening suspense by waiting a second or two isn't just effective, it's downright presidential. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Now, it's not just John F. Kennedy who mastered this trick. It's also fish. That is the latest insight from Washington University scientist Bruce Carlson and his Carlson Lab. The biology professor's research explores how fish use pauses in communication, just like us. It's further proof that non-human communication is often more sophisticated than we might think. And joining us today to explain more is Bruce Carlson. He's a professor of biology at Washington University, and he runs the Carlson Lab. Bruce, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Bruce, at your lab, you work with a particular type of fish. I understand they're called baby black whales. What, what kind of fish or, or whales are they? Yeah, so, so they're not whales. They're fish. And uh, the baby black whale is just one species of a group of over 200 species. Uh, they're fish called myrids, more commonly known as elephant fishes, and they're found throughout sub-Saharan Africa and the uh, Nile River Basin, uh, where they are extremely common. They're found just about in every body of fresh water you can find there. Lakes, rivers, streams, creeks, swamps, you name it. They are extremely abundant. And so what makes them interesting to you as a researcher? So what makes them special is that these fish communicate with each other using electricity. And is that that's unusual within the fish world? Uh, yes and no. Uh, your average fish that most people think about, your catfish, tuna, salmon, etc., uh, they do not communicate with electricity. Uh, but it's not uncommon. Uh, this group of fish, like I said, there's over 200 species. Uh, they communicate with electricity. Uh, so do a group of fish from, from Latin America called knife fishes. Uh, they also communicate with electricity. Uh, skates do it. And then a handful of other fish uh, also communicate with electricity. So it's not terribly rare, but it's also not n- nearly universal among okay. fish. And so how do they communicate with electricity? Well, so the way they do it, it's, it's actually not that different from how our own bodies work. So the way that the neurons, the nerve cells in our brains communicate with each other is with electricity. They generate el- electrical spikes called action potentials, and that's how they transmit information to each other. And our muscles, when we contract our muscles, Uh, that's also controlled by electricity. An electrical spike hits the muscle fiber, and that makes it contract. And what these fish have done uh, over evolutionary time, but also during developmental time in a single fish, is they've taken muscle cells, 
and they've modified them to lose their contractile ability, but they retain their electrical ability. And so they generate electricity just like our muscles do, but they don't contract. And what the fish have done is they've stacked up uh, a bunch of these modified muscle cells in series, kind of like if you were to put a bunch of watch batteries in series, and their brain triggers them all to generate an electrical spike at the exact same moment in time. So their individual electrical spikes, which are very small, they add up with each other, just like batteries in series, to create a much bigger voltage. And so what are they communicating with that voltage? So they're communicating a whole bunch of information. They're communicating identity information, so things like their species, their sex, their reproductive status, their dominant status, their age, um, uh, possibly even their individual identity. Uh, they're sending this out into the water. Yes, they're, they're transmitting this information in the water. And they're also communicating contextual information about their behavioral state. So things like, I'm looking for a mate, or I'm receptive, or this is my territory, or bug off or I'm going to, t going to attack you, or I submit, you win. These various kinds, kinds of uh, uh, contextual communication that, that many non-human species communicate with each other. So we want to let people know if, you, if you're interested in these fish, you can find a photo of them on our website. That's stlpr.org. We've also put one up on our Twitter. Uh, that's at STL on air if you want to see what Bruce is talking about here. Now, I want to play some audio of what they sound like when they're, they're sending these electric pulses. Is that the right word? Yes. Absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, so let's play some audio of how this works. This was recorded there in the Carlson lab. And so these are the signals being sent by these electric fish. I got to say, I can't decipher anything they're sending me there. <laughs> yeah. So, so what you're hearing, you're hearing a series of discrete pops. And each of those pops uh, has what we would call the exact same waveform or shape. So I would, I think probably the best analogy for your listeners would be an EKG. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have had an EKG or they've at least seen an EKG, mm -hmm. an electrocardiogram. And when you're looking at that, what you're looking at is a, a plot, a trace of voltage over time. And every time your heart beats, you have a characteristic waveform or shape that appears. There's the P wave, the QRS complex, and the T wave. And every time your heart beats, you see that exact same electrical waveform. It's just like that in these fish. Every time they discharge their electric organ, there's a characteristic electric waveform, and it looks exactly the same each time they pulse it. They can't modify the shape of that pulse. But what they can do, just like your heart rate speeds up when you're excited and it slows down when you're relaxed, they can modify the rate of those electrical pulses. And that's how they communicate contextual information. So one fish's waveform is the same from moment to moment, but it's different from another fish's waveform. And so the shape of that waveform is what communicates identity information, species, sex, dominant status, individual identity. But the repetition rate, how fast they're going, how slow they're going, that's communicating things like courtship and aggression and submission and territoriality. So tell us how pauses then play into that. Yeah, so it's been known for some time when you record from these fish, they'll, they'll be ticking along and communicating with each other and signaling constantly, and then they would just periodically stop. Hmm. for a second or two. Um, and what we found in this study is that if you stimulate these fish and you record from the, from the nerve cells in their brain, record the responses of those cells to these stimuli that mimic the signal coming from another fish, that when you repeatedly stimulate them, the responses of those neurons progressively get weaker and weaker and weaker. It's kind of like they get fatigued over time. 
And when you insert a pause in that continuous stimulation, it's like a reset. It's like it, it allows the sensory neurons to recover back to their baseline level, and they become just as responsive as they were at the start of the stimulation. So it's basically like a, a reset to, to go back to their original level of sensitivity. So it's almost like how if somebody's droning on and on, we kind of start to tune out. That person pauses, and all of a sudden it's like, wait, where's she going with this? Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's very analogous to that. So this makes so much sense to me, but I guess the part that kind of blows my mind is that you've been able to figure all of this out. Like, how did you have this breakthrough on the pauses? Well, so it, it actually started with uh, a moment of serendipity. Um, so my former postdoc, uh, Tsunehiko Kohashi, um, he was, uh, he's the lead author on the study, the first author on the study, and he was pouring through some old data collected by some previous postdocs in the lab. And in these kinds of experiments in general, our lab and other labs that study sensory biology in the brain, the typical approach is uh, you record electrical activity from a neuron and you present a sensory stimulus and you present it repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And the reason you do that, present it repeatedly, is so you can build up a nice average response, a nice clean average, and you can compare how a neuron responds to one stimulus versus another. And what he noticed in pouring over this old data was that, well, when they repeat a stimulus, it looks like the neuron responds really well to the first repetition, but the later repetitions, the response was a bit weaker. And he, he, he looked through many, many recordings and saw that this seemed to be a really consistent trend. And he said, you know, I'll bet they're not waiting long enough after one stimulus before repeating the next stimulus. They're not giving enough time for the neuron to go back to its baseline level of excitability. And so he went in and directly tested that, recorded from these neurons, presented them with a the stimulus, and then systematically varied the amount of time that elapsed between one stimulus and the next. And sure enough, he found that you need a gap of around one or two seconds between two stimuli to get the neuron back to its original level of responsiveness. And so he, he pretty much stumbled into this, but then yep. he did some very methodical follow-up work. Yes, yeah. So, so he, then he verified this uh, doing electrophysiology recordings from neurons in the brain. Uh, and then he went on working with some really talented undergraduates in the lab uh, to do behavioral experiments. Uh, where basically he repeated the same thing, but now instead of recording from neurons in the brain, he actually recorded the electrical output of the fish. So you can stimulate the fish with these electrical signals, and then you can monitor their own electrical signaling in response to that. And he found that just like the neurons, that if you hit them with two stimuli with a really short interval between them, the response to the second stimulus was very weak. But if you inserted a pause of about one to two seconds between those stimuli, then you would get a much more robust behavioral response. We're talking today to Bruce Carlson. He's a biology professor at Washington University, uh, works there at the Carlson Lab, and has uncovered some really interesting things with his co-author about the electric pulses that fish send and, and what that tells us about communication. And so, Bruce, it's, it's fascinating to have such a better sense of how this works for these fish. But if we want to take that and, and um, make it something bigger, what does that tell us about animal communication in general? Well, I think the, the really interesting thing here is linguists have known about this phenomenon in human language for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. so, um, so you mentioned that, you know, really effective speakers uh, like the JFK are well known for effective use of pauses. Uh, other famous names that are known for this are uh, MLK Jr., um, uh, Obama, Steve Jobs was legendary for, for his use of pauses. But it's not just uh, effective speakers that are uh, consciously doing this. We actually do this in our normal everyday speech. So if you look at statistical patterns of speaking, we tend to insert pauses 
right before words that have especially high information content that are going to be somewhat su surprising, that are, are not expected based on the current context. It's fascinating how once you start listening for this, you, li you hear it all the time. I imagine this happened to you, too, as yeah, you started absolutely. looking into this. Absolutely. And so, yeah, we're all doing it, and the fish are doing it. Yeah, and it turns out our brains also, if you record an EEG from a person, uh, you know, we can't stick an electrode in a person's brain and record from neurons the same way we can do in these fish, but we can record EEGs, electroencephalograms of brain activity. And what you find is that our auditory system responds more strongly to a word that comes right after a pause. So what this is suggesting is, is what we like to think about in animal communication as sender-receiver matching. That the senders are sending out a signal that the receivers are especially attuned to. Hmm. And so our system, auditory system responds well to pause sounds that come right after a pause, and speakers are doing a good job at quote-unquote exploiting that. And so we found a parallel in our fish, that the same exact two things are happening in our fish. They respond more strongly after a pause, and the fish generate pauses to take advantage of that. So that there's a really nice parallel there. And what we go beyond in this study is we don't just find this parallel, but we find a fundamental underlying mechanism for this phenomenon in the, the listeners. And this phenomenon is what we call synaptic depression. So synapses are how one neuron talks to another, and very commonly what you find in the brains of pretty much every species that has ever been studied is that when you repeatedly stimulate a synapse, that synapse gets weaker and weaker with repeated activation. And that's what we found in our fish, that with, in the response to repeated signals, the synapses get weaker, the sensory neurons response gets weaker, and you need a pause to reset the system and bring those synapses back to their original strength. And because this is such a universal mechanism in the nervous systems of all animals, we think it's very likely that the exact same mechanism may be operating in humans to explain these phenomena, as well as we would guess a whole bunch of other species. It's interesting to think how fish would figure this out. I feel like nobody ever explains to humans that you need that pregnant pause, but if you start studying good speakers, you, you start to realize, okay, this is what JFK did, I'm gonna do this. Do we have any idea how fish are figuring this out? Well, so, you know, we can't say anything about what's going on in the mind of a fish. But I think it's really important to, that we know that humans do this unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And so there's no reason to think that the fish are intentionally doing this in any way. But that raises an interesting question for humans and for the fish. Is this something that uh, we've evolved through biological evolution, uh, that, that we have some kind of genetic predisposition to insert these kinds of pauses in our communication? Or is this something that we subconsciously learn through experience, that as we interact and engage with the outside world, do we subconsciously learn that certain patterns of communicating tend to be more effective than others? Um, that's something, we can't do that experiment on people, obviously, but that's something we'd like to do in our fish. Uh, take uh, fish from the egg stage, raise them in complete isolation and manipulate their social environment during development and see, is this something that they learn through experience or is this something that they're more predisposed to? That's fascinating that you can actually do things with fish that would be uh, considered inhumane to do with people. It gives you really a great laboratory here. So is that something you're working on getting set up now? Yeah, that's that's one of the next things uh, for the, in, on the docket for the future. So the Carlson Lab is going to stay busy on this. Anything else that you're looking at where you landed and saying, okay, this is the, the next thing I need to look at here? Uh, well, with regards to this particular study, what we're really interested in now is trying to link the sensory system of the fish to the fish's motor system. So we found that there's this increased sensory response following a pause, and we found that there's, there's this increased behavioral response following a pause. So what connects the two? 
So, you know, we go through the brain, you've got the sensory receptors that goes up into sensory regions of the brain, that goes up into higher integrative areas of the brain, then that feeds out into to motor control regions of the brain, and then uh, in humans, that controls our muscles, in these fish, that controls their electric organ. So what's going on in the transformation of this, these early sensory neurons that we recorded from to the final behavioral output? What's, what's kind of regulating and, and mediating that transformation? Hmm. My understanding, uh, Bruce, is that you have been working with these fish since 1997. Does it ever amaze you just how much there is left to learn here? Oh, yes. I, so uh, I've been, I started studying these fish uh, when I started my PhD studies. Uh, and the species I've studied and the, the kinds of questions I've asked have changed a lot over the years, but I've been studying these fish in one way or another since then. Um, and it's clear that by the time I retire, we will not have figured out everything about these fish. And I mean, we're using these fish to study the brain, and we certainly will not have everything figured out about the brain by then. Boy, that's the one thing I think we can hold you to on that. Well, Bruce Carlson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and explaining this science so well. Oh, it was wonderful. Thank you for having me. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.